I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Kevin Daly of The Daily Caller. Thanks for joining me, Kevin. So great to be back on the pod. So let's hit a couple of SCOTUS headlines. First up, she's been back at the court for two months, but RBG conspiracy theories abound. Every week I see an article or someone tweeting crackpot theories that Justice Ginsburg is not actually alive. Uh, Now, I haven't been over to the court lately, but you're there for almost every argument, right? So can you confirm that you have seen Justice Ginsburg with your own eyes? Not that this matters to the QAnon people, but I have seen her with my own eyes. She's (laughs) doing very well. And the scenario, so my 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 inbox has just been like a wasteland of just vile emails from crazy people who are convinced that Justice Ginsburg <laughs> is dead. So I'm in this like bizarre situation where it's like, who do you believe? Your mentions are your lying eyes. Um, but you know what's what's interesting is that I think she was aware of all of these untoward rumors that were circulating mm-hmm. um, about her. And so when she returned for the February sitting, um, she moved with a lot of purpose when she took the bench. Um, you know, she she stood up. She was smiling. She was projecting, um, it seemed, a lot of confidence and a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and she spoke much more forcefully than she usually does. Sometimes Justice Ginsburg is sort of difficult to hear during an oral argument, but yeah. she was very forceful in her questioning. So I think she wanted to repudiate all of these rumors that have been circulating. That is not a hologram that's no. been up at the Supreme <laughs> Court yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, good, good for her. Uh, next piece of SCOTUS news. Uh, back in January, the court agreed to hear a case uh, on its in its next term challenging New York City's ban on transporting a licensed, locked, and unloaded gun to anywhere within the city limits except for approved gun ranges. Now the city has announced that it's going to repeal this ban. Uh, the challengers only sought injunctive relief. So if the law is repealed, the Supreme Court really can't grant any further relief, and that would moot the case. Uh, so the justices don't particularly like it when a party tries to take a case away from them. Um, so, Kevin, what do you think is going to happen here? Um, so they've they've already uh, New York has already uh, motioned to stay the briefing, um, and they're they're substituting uh, the city is substituting uh, a new rule um, that would provide that uh, handguns can be transferred from uh, another uh, another premise of the licensee where the licensee is authorized to have, possess a handgun, a gun club, or a second home, or something like that. Uh, a shooting range or a shooting competition outside of city limits, um, which has not been uh, the case heretofore. Um, and they expect to have uh, a final rule promulgated uh, on that point by mid-May. Um, so New York City, it seems, is is moving very quickly uh, and decisively to, to moot this case. Um, I don't really want to speculate about what the justices are, are going to do. Um, I would not be surprised if they backed away because one thing that I found notable about this petition um, was the extent to which uh, there was a lot of kind of issue narrowing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So as we know, the court uh, for the last decade has been very reluctant to wade into the Second Amendment area. They have not taken uh, a single Second Amendment case uh, since 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here the petitioners did a very good job uh, of presenting a very narrow question that put uh, a draconian law in a particular jurisdiction at issue and really absolutely nothing else. Um, and so I, I would not be surprised just because of how narrow the issue is um, and because of the reluctance of, in recent years of the court to get involved in this area if they if they just, uh, you know, mooted the case and, and dismissed it. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for another Second Amendment case uh, because it seems like at least a few of the justices are really interested yes. in taking taking on one of these cases. 
All right. So moving on, there were no opinions or really any significant orders that came out of the court this week, but the justices did hear oral arguments. And there was one pretty interesting case, Yanku versus Brunetti. And this case asked the justices to look at whether the Lanham Act, which prohibits registration of immoral or scandalous trademarks by the, tra- uh, the Patent and Trademark Office, violates the First Amendment. So if this sounds familiar, that's because the Supreme Court heard a similar case, Mattal versus Tam, back in 2017, challenging uh, the same law's prohibition on offensive trademarks. The justices unanimously ruled for the challengers, an Asian-American band called the Slants, with Justice Samuel Alito declaring that the ban on offensive trademarks, quote, offends a bedrock First Amendment principle. Speech may not be banned on the ground that it expresses ideas that offend. So fast forward to 2019, the case currently before the justices was brought by Eric Brunetti, who started a streetwear clothing brand that includes shirts and other items emblazoned with the term F-U-C-T, which apparently stands for Friends You Can't Trust, but it embodies an entire uh, rebel lifestyle, apparently. So the trademark office denied his application for a trademark because the term is, quote, a phonetic twin of and past tense of a vulgar word and is therefore scandalous in violation of the Lanham Act. Act. Brunetti appealed and the federal circuit ruled in his favor, finding that this prohibition on immoral and scandalous trademarks is unconstitutional. Uh, So now it's at the Supreme Court. And during the oral argument, the justices and the advocates from both sides fastidiously avoided uh, using either the the actual F word or Brunetti's term. Uh, Malcolm Stewart, a longtime deputy in the Solicitor General's office, argued on behalf of the government, and he referred to the term as the equivalent of the profane past participle form of a well-known word of profanity, which is a pretty long way. Very, <laughs> of, very SG move. Yeah, of getting, getting around to that, to that term. Uh, so Stewart admitted that the way the trademark office previously read this provision of the Lanham Act could be construed as viewpoint discrimination, but said going forward that the agency pinky swears that it will read the statute more narrowly. Uh, Justice Kagan didn't like that, and she jumped in and said, you know, that would be a strange thing for us to do, to basically take your commitment that even though the statutory language is very broad, that we're going to pretend that the the uh, the words are much, much narrower than they actually are. Uh, Justice Alito asked about, you know, what's the government's interest here? Uh, Malcolm Stewart said it was there twofold. It was to protect unwilling viewers from material they find offensive and not having the government uh, associate with certain words. At that, Justice Sotomayor questioned the, the first asserted interest, pointing out that the denial of trademark registration wouldn't remove the product from the stream of commerce. Uh, Justice Gorsuch also pointed out that the trademark office's inconsistent treatment of applications seemed like they were flipping a coin. Uh, So, for example, while Brunetti's application for F-U-C-T was rejected, the clothing company French Connection UK was successful in its trademark application for (laughs) F-C-U-K. There's a a fabulous chart uh, in an amicus brief uh, from two law professors at NYU Law School, I believe, um, who cataloged all 6.2 million trademarks that have been registered with the PTO since 1985. And there were some <laughs> accompanying data sets. So like Justice Breyer was fit to be tied. Um, <laughs> I bet. But they had, they had some fabulous charts um, in, the, in the appendix to their amicus brief, uh, you know, that put 
certain trademarks that had been registered against certain trademarks that had been denied, which were very nearly identical. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're just looking at the the plain language um, of those marks, it is difficult to discern neutral principles that explain these differentiations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but of course the government would say, you know, well, when you look at the context of of these trademarks and and um, you know what the uh, applicant was was getting at in its use of this requested mark, then these differentiations become much more understandable. Yeah, the the lawyer for Brunetti, John Summers, pointed out that the the standard the trademark office employs for rejecting an application for being immoral or scandalous is whether a substantial composite of the general public would find it shocking or immoral. Uh, immoral, and he, you know, Summers said that this is incredibly broad. And he pointed out that, for example, Steak and Shake could be considered immoral, since there is certainly a substantial uh, portion of Americans uh, who who believe that eating meat is immoral. He he ran into some trouble because um, he also asserted that the brand name itself here um, was was a viewpoint um, that in in using this alliterative profanity. Um, you know, Mr. Brunetti and his clients are expressing, as you alluded to earlier, kind of a heterodox lifestyle, uh, a refusal <laughs> to conform. Uh, and he and the justices really did not seem receptive to that argument at all. Um, and it dovetails nicely with a point that the government was making, which is, um, you know, we're not uh, objecting to any substantive speech here. We are simply objecting uh, to the manner in which it is communicated through this, you know, handful of profane words, which are so offensive uh, to so many people. And here, um, I think a lot of people, including myself, kind of got frustrated with Summer because, um, you know, he kept double and tripling down on this idea, um, you know, that that the uh, requested mark here was a viewpoint and the justices simply were not having it. And they, <laughs> they you know, asked him the, the second and third questions, um, you know, in rebuttal to his point, And he did not have those second and third answers in his pocket that you typically see of experienced appellate advocates. So mm-hmm. uh, it, this was a case that, that goes to show that uh, oral argument really can make a difference. Uh, to the disposition of a case. And uh, it's so important to have uh, appeals practitioners arguing your appeals. <laughs> uh, were there any other exchanges that really stood out? You know, one thing um, I found interesting uh, was that Justice Gorsuch um, uh, motioned back to the oil states decision from last year um, in a connection with the idea that uh, a patent is a public right. Uh, and here he was said, so this this is relevant because the government says, you know, a trademark is a government benefit. We're simply placing a, a condition on the issuance of a government benefit. And, you know, we can do that, especially where we have, you know, a legitimate interest, mm-hmm. which is in this case, A, B, and C. Um, Justice Gorsuch seems sympathetic to that argument, pointed out, hey, just last year we said that patents are public benefits. So what would be the difference here? And I thought that that was interesting uh, because Justice Gorsuch was in dissent uh, in the oil states case. It was a seven and two decision and it was Gorsuch and the chief uh, alone in dissent. And there's this um, kind of image of Justice Gorsuch out there as like, you know, next generation Clarence Thomas, uh, a person who's going to issue precedent <laughs> wherever he thinks it's seriously awry. Um, and uh, this, this I think, caused that, that perception into question. Definitely. And it seemed to me that Chief Justice Roberts was a little concerned um, about Brunetti's arguments. You know, he pointed out that, you know, Brunetti says that his products are sold exclusively online. You can't get them at places like Walmart. But Robert's concern seemed to be that government registration of the trademark would facilitate its use in commerce. Right. And and Summers pointed out, you know, well, the intended audience is young men who want to be rebels. And Roberts rejoined, that may be so, but that's not the only audience that he's reaching. Yes. Um, and he he was particularly worried about parents who are trying to, you know, protect their children from profanity. Um, I'd say another exchange that that really stuck out to me 
um, was Justice Breyer's concern, uh, and Justice Alito expressed similar concerns um, over uh, you know possible trademarking of racial slurs, including mm-hmm. the racial slur, which is the height and summit of all racial slurs. Um, and on rebuttal, uh, when when Malcolm Stewart was back at the podium, the very first thing out of his mouth, you know, was actually there are several petitions which the PTO is holding in abeyance pending the outcome of of litigation um, that that seek to trademark the racial slur that you are referring to. Um, and that's the kind of fact that can dramatically alter the tone of a case. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think th- I think that that's the case here, which is not to say that I think that the government is going to prevail. Um, but I think a lot of people, including myself, were assuming this was just going to be uh, an easy extension of TAM. And now mm-hmm. I think the court is thinking a little bit more closely about a constellation of profane words and slurs that it, it really wants to uh, it does that it does not want to force the government to trademark. Definitely. Well, I think this might be one that uh, we won't see an opinion until the very end of June. Uh, Well, moving on, I recently spoke with Professor Jamil Jaffer. Jamil Jaffer is a professor at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Jamil. Thanks. Good to be here. So you've worked in private practice in the White House Counsel's Office on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Intelligence Committee in academia, at a tech startup, these are just a few of the jobs that you've had. So what's the best job that you've had? Well, look, I think the best job I've ever had uh, was working at the Justice Department uh, in the National Security Division. Um, it was the early part of 2007, uh, 2008. Uh, we were doing some amazing things. We were redoing the way that surveillance was conducted in the United States uh, and overseas. Uh, we were working on critical terrorism matters. Um, and every day, and we were setting up a whole new division, and every day was run and gun. Uh, helping uh, protect the nation, um, you know, in, in using using the law, um, but it was it was always exciting. There was always something new and innovative. We had a great team, including Ken Weinstein, uh, Matt Olson, John Demers, uh, Brett Gary, uh, Charlie Steele. It was a great crew, um, and we were having a great time, but also doing stuff that really mattered and really, I think, having an impact uh, to support the, the warfighters and the intelligence operators out in the field uh, who do the real hard work out there. So. Much of your work has been in the national security field. How did you get into this area? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, it's actually my dad's fault. Now, my dad was a chemist by trade um, and, to be honest, a, uh, a card-carrying socialist. Um, and he <laughs> Boy. raised me on uh, – I know. It's, he can't figure out how, far, how, how the apple fell so far from the tree. Um, but, uh, but, you know, my dad uh, raised me every morning uh, as I was growing up on a steady diet of NPR. Um, <laughs> and so – and he, we would always argue about politics and, and international matters and war uh, and the like over breakfast in our little breakfast nook um, in West L.A. Um, and so it was that passion for politics that my dad had, even though it wasn't what he did as a day job, uh, that got me into thinking about international issues, thinking about national security, uh, and being motivated to, to help uh, when I grew up. And, uh, you know, my one biggest regret is that I never served in the military. Um, but um, having not done that, um, I've done what I can on, on the outside of that. Uh, to support uh, the warfighters and our intelligence operators and our law enforcement personnel who are out there every day doing the real job of protecting our nation Mm -hmm. uh, day in and day out. So you're not the only Jamil Jaffer around. Uh, You might call the other one Bizarro Jaffer, kind of like Bizarro Superman or Bizarro Seinfeld, uh, since he has worked on the opposite end of national security issues from you. Uh, He's litigated against the Obama administration's use of drones, the Bush administration's interrogation methods. He was on the ACLU's legal team that represented Edward Snowden. So first, have you ever met the other Jaffer? I have. So actually, the first time uh, I learned of him was uh, when I was working at the Justice Department, and 
uh, his name appeared on a brief um, <laughs> in the FISA court. Um, and I was filing briefs on behalf of the government. He was filing briefs on behalf of the ACLU. We ended up going back and forth. Um, and, uh, and it was kind of funny uh, to learn that this guy was basically, uh, we had a very similar background, uh, both ethnically Indian, three generations of our families from East Africa, um, both Muslims, both working in national security, him on the very liberal sort of uh, civil liberties and privacy side, me on the very hawkish government uh, surveillance uh, and counterterrorism side. Um, and um, what was interesting about it, so after, after I left the government uh, and after I left the Bush administration, um, I decided to try meet up with him. And so we exchanged emails and we actually met in Georgetown um, and had a great conversation. Uh, really nice guy, really down to earth. Um, uh, but we just have very different views of the world. Um, and his views are, are well-reasoned and well-thought out. You know, um, he went to a great law school at Harvard. I was at Chicago. And so we just came from different places. Um, and, and, uh, and it's been a great relationship. He now, interestingly enough, runs a free speech center um, uh, in New York uh, at Columbia, um, and I uh, run a, I am on the board of a, of a conservative free speech organization that defends uh, the rights of, of conservatives to speak on campus. So we keep seeing to follow each other around. The one interesting thing I'll tell you is that um, uh, my cousin Bijamadani, um, who's a who's a privacy uh, advocate um, and now works at, and now works at Facebook, uh, Bijan once sent me a Twitter conversation between a bunch of folks on the left uh, about what they should call me because they they hypothesized correctly that my name was one of the redacted names on the Yahoo brief uh, in, the, in the government's fight against Yahoo for surveillance. And they're trying to decide what to call me. You know, it was, it was things like you said, like, you know, bad Jaffer, you know, terrible Jaffer, whatever. And they ultimately came around to my favorite one, which is Jamival. And so um, I'm, I'm hoping to get, eventually get a PhD so one day I can be a Dr. Jamival. That's, <laughs> That's great. We should make T-shirts. <laughs> there you go. All right. Back to your career. Let's talk about your clerkships. Uh, you've racked up quite a few. So your first appellate clerkship with, uh, was with Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit. Tell me about Judge Jones and what you learned from her. So Judge Jones is, is an amazing woman. She is a, a, uh, a machine, a workhorse, uh, a brilliant intellect, um, one of the toughest, uh, smartest conservatives I know. Um, I, if not the, the smartest, the smartest and toughest conservative I know. Um, you know, and she was right there at the beginning of my career. Um, you know, I interviewed with her my, my, uh, the beginning of my 2L year. Uh, she offered me a job on the spot in, uh, in Texas, which she, as she pointed out, was not her normal practice, but, uh, but a, a professor of mine had called her, and she was kind enough to do that. So I went to go work for her right out of law school, and it was awesome. I mean, we, uh, I was there with Will Consovoy, um, who, you know, obviously a, a, a distinguished Supreme Court practitioner in his own, in his own right now. Um, and he was definitely the favorite law clerk. Um, I was definitely not. Um, but but Judge Jones, I think, has a special place in her heart for me. And so we, um, I, she's just so amazing. Um, she's been a mentor to me. She's taught me everything I know about the law. Um, and then, you know, she also married me and my wife um, uh, at the Jefferson Memorial um, now two and a half, uh, uh, roughly two years ago. Um, and so... Uh, so she's been a, she's been an important part of my life, and she is an amazing uh, judge. And you know when she goes and works on the cases, it's amazing. She you know she grew up in the era where Lexus and Westall were not a thing, and so she mm-hmm. will go into her library, pull physical volumes off the shelf, and literally write the opinion. And the interesting thing about Judge Jones is, you know, you know pe- people always talk about law clerks and their role with their judges, right? You would write her a draft or a memo or the like, and she would take it, and it would, she would completely redo it. You would see not a word of your work in the final product and would just go out the door and it was done because she'd been doing it for so long. She knew what she was doing. She knew what she wanted. Law clerks are interesting. Um, thanks for the help. I'm going to write the opinion. Off we go. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so then you practiced at Kellogg Huber and you also spent some time 
in the Justice Department uh, in various capacities, including the Office of Legal Policy, where you worked on the Roberts and Alito confirmations. So tell me about working those confirmations. Sure. Well, you know, it was a really neat thing. I, when I was at Kellogg-Huber, by the way, I overlapped for two brief months with Neil Gorsuch, uh, now Justice Neil Gorsuch, obviously, uh, when he was a uh, you know a young partner at the firm. He left uh, after two months I was there to go to the Justice Department. Seven months later, I followed him and was at the Justice Department, then working for Rachel Brand, who is another amazing leader, a, a solid conservative, uh, and just, just one, of my, one of the best bosses I've ever had. Um, and so Rachel uh, was kind enough to let me work on um, – uh, what became the Roberts uh, nomination, then became the chief nomination, and then uh, the follow-on with uh, with Justice Alito, um, and it was a neat thing. You know, I worked for I worked with Gordon Todd and Nathan Sales, who led the teams respectively on those two confirmations, um, and you know, Beth Cook, and I mean, everyone, you know, all the people uh, who you know are sort of now that 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 you know mid mid career senior level folks. Those were all the young people I worked with, and then our interns, all the people who came and helped us on that confirmation, are now the people who are all getting the senior positions of the Justice Department who are being nominated to the courts of appeals. It is amazing to me to watch uh, the farm team uh, that Rachel Brand uh, had both on the staff and, and even at the intern level uh, who she's developed into new leaders. Um, you know, and it just goes to show you know, the work that she's done in the, last, in the most recent administration, the current administration, um, and now the work she's doing at Walmart. Um, she's a real developer of leaders, and uh, you know, I think more to come from Rachel Brand. So, as you mentioned, you you overlapped with with uh, future justice and future judge uh, Neil Gorsuch. Uh, when he became a Tenth Circuit judge, you went along with him to Colorado to to be a law clerk. So, tell me about this clerkship. I, I would imagine it was a little bit different from your previous clerkship, since he was new to the bench and you already knew him. Yes, yeah, so it was a little embarrassing actually the way this whole thing began because um, there we were at the Justice Department. Um, he had been uh, nominated. Um, and so I helped out on the confirmation. He gets confirmed and he comes to me and says, you know, hey, Jamil, um, you know, uh, I, I want to hire some law clerks. Um, you know, can you help me? And so we started talking about potential people he might hire, um, including uh, Mike Davis, who who ultimately uh, clerked with us that year and went on to, uh, you know, be uh, one of our clerks at the Supreme Court also. And, and then served as the chief counsel for the Judiciary Committee, getting through all these amazing judges that the president nominated and Senate confirmed over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So we hired these three other law clerks and uh, and uh, helped identify them, and he hired them. And then he had one more spot, and he asked me if I would come. And I remember saying to him, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, <laughs> I work for Edith Jones. I'm not going to come work for some baby 37-year-old judge on the Tenth Circuit. you got to be kidding. I mean, looking back, what, what an embarrassing thing to say, right? I mean, mortifying. He was kind of – he laughed about it. thought it was funny. And then ultimately made the pitch to me that, look, you know, look, it's ski season in Denver. This is a good time to come. You come – for a few months, you know, and if you end up getting another job, you can leave. And so, um, so, and then Rachel was nice enough to let me go. And so uh, off I went and spent four months with him. And it was crazy because, you know, we stood up at Chambers. Uh, we worked on the first set of memos and opinions and, um, you know, he had his investiture. We bought a house, uh, you know, his entire family moved uh, from, from Virginia to, to back to Colorado where he was from and spent, you know, had grown up. Um, and, uh, and there he was. He was going to be there for the rest of his life. And they had this beautiful house in, in, in Boulder, Colorado, and you know, on the outskirts. And, and then, you know, here we are a, a, a little over a decade later, um, <laughs> and, uh, and he's moving back. You know, and we have to buy a house here and, uh, and, and go through that whole process all over again, stand up at Chambers and do the memos, the first set of opinions. And it was crazy, you know, a decade later to be part of that. Um, and that group of us, the law clerks that ended up coming with him back to the Supreme Court, um, included Mike Davis, who was there with me that first year in Colorado, 
and included uh, Janie Nitsa and Matt Owen and David Fetter, who were a, few, a couple years behind us in Colorado. Uh, but it was the old team, and the crazy thing about coming to the court was we're all older now, right? And so, <laughs> you know, I, I may very well have been the oldest law clerk or one of the oldest law clerks in modern Supreme Court history at 42. You know, my good friend from law school, Jeff Wall, as, we're, as, we're, as I'm coming on the court as a law clerk, is the acting solicitor general of the United States, and I'm, you know, a little <laughs> law clerk. So, you know, just goes to show. Um, all that sort of bravado that I showed at that first at that first conversation we had at Starbucks across from DOJ, that just goes to show at 42, you're back to being a law clerk. <laughs> so I hope you have some funny stories about the justice that you can share. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I'll, I'll share one. Um, so our first um, our first week in Colorado, we had just arrived, um, and Mike Davis and I had just had just gotten to town. Uh, the other law clerks of that year hadn't arrived yet. And uh, and the then judge was uh, was kind of saying, hey, let's go, let's go do something fun. Um, and he's a he's an avid skier, an avid outdoorsman. He loves to fly fish uh, and hike um, and 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 bike. And so he suggests that we go alpine sledding. Now you have to understand, I grew up in L.A. Um, <laughs> there are no real there are hills, not really mountains to speak of in L.A. And so so I don't know I don't know what alpine sledding is. So off we go to um, to Winter Park um, and Mary Jane, where he where it's one of his favorite ski resorts. And uh, we go on this alpine, so it's basically it's basically a luge, right? Um, and uh, and as you know, I, I it was crazy. So of course, me and Davis get in our things. He gets in his. We're in parallel, um, and he beat us down by a mile each of the three <laughs> times we raced, and made fun of us every time. <laughs> so um, you know, and and that by the way, that skill set that he had um, in terms of skiing and uh, and and alpine sledding uh, continued to be true. Uh, when he was ultimately uh, nominated for the court, um, and he had the chance to go back and um, and spend some time with his family when when during the confirmation process, he had a he had a brief break. Um, I forget whether it was after confirmation or after after he was sworn in, but either way, um, uh, he had gone out uh, to go skiing, and um, the marshal service sent out their best skiers uh, so that they could uh, they could you know keep an eye on him so he didn't get attacked by some you know, terrorists on the mountain slopes. Um, and uh, as it turns out, there was not a single skier in the U.S. Marshal Service who can keep up with one Justice Neil M. Gorsuch. <laughs> so go figure. I think, he was, I think he was still a judge at the time, but pretty amazing. So a real athlete, too. And, and just, a, just a good down-to-earth guy. Yeah, that's great. So you're also co-teaching a, a class at Scalia Law School with him, um, although it's not on the main law school campus. It's in Padua, Italy this summer. So first, is there any chance an alumni such as myself could audit this class? <laughs> we can negotiate. We can discuss it. Certainly, certainly an opportunity. Maybe we can get you out to guest lecture um, either this year or next year and, uh, and have you uh, share some of your experiences. Absolutely. It'd be, it'd be, great. It'd be great to have you out. Um, but yeah, we take, a, we take a group of about 25 Scalia Law School students um, uh, out every, uh, uh, now this will be now the second summer. Um, and uh, he teaches a class on separation of powers, uh, and I teach a class on interbranch conflicts and national security law. Um, and it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great time. It's great for the students; they get a lot of uh, hands-on interaction time with him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we bring in some great guest lecturers. Last year, we had uh, Matt Olson, the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center in the Obama administration. Uh, we had um, we had Ben Wittes from Lawfare. We had Judge Attorney General F- Michael Mukasey. We had Judge Edith Jones. Um, and so just a great, a great group of folks, uh, the Dean of the law school came out, spent some time with us also. So just a great, really, I mean, can you imagine 25 Scalia law school students uh, spending time with, with a couple of federal judges, a Supreme court justice, a former attorney general, um, you know, uh, editor of one of the, one of the uh, most prominent legal blogs out there and, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and the former head of the national counterterrorism center, pretty good, pretty good crew. So 
Um, it was a lot of fun. So how did oh, you? Judge, Judge Greg Katz, Judge Greg Katz from the DC Circuit came out last year too. Oh, wonderful! It's a great crew. So yeah. how did you come up with the with the location? Oh, great question. So um, you know we were we were trying to find a place where we thought that the students would uh, would be able to study, and while while they were abroad, um, it was a small enough city that it wouldn't get too crazy. So Rome seemed too big and noisy and 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 and, and too much. Um, Padua was a good small town, about the right size. We had. Uh, uh, a, a one of the people we work with, uh, our director of international programs, uh, Amario Kanji, uh, at the law school, who had previously studied himself at the University of Padua, and uh, we were able to build a relationship with the law faculty there. Um, you know, uh, some great folks had previously studied there, uh, including, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Galileo um, and and Marcella Padua, who actually wrote a treatise on the separation of powers. So um, it's just a, it's just about 30 minutes from Venice, so a a uh, a, a nice distance uh, from a big city, um, but a, but a great place to go study and learn. Um, but it, the goal was to focus in an academic setting, and so mm-hmm. the University of Padua was one of the oldest universities in Europe, one of the oldest law faculties in Europe, and so we thought it made sense from a size, location, and having that university there uh, perspective. That's great. So speaking of summer courses, what yeah. do you make of all of this uh, business regarding Justice Kavanaugh teaching a summer course in Runnymede, England? I mean, I think it's a great idea. I mean, you know, listen, if, if the Scalia Law School uh, can bring two Supreme Court justices to their students, to our students, um, and, and have them learn from two, two Supreme Court justices, that is a benefit to the students. It's a benefit to uh, the law school. It's a benefit to the university. Um, and the university president, um, you know, has, has, has supported this decision all the way through, um, and rightly so. I mean, there is no reason why, um, uh, why we shouldn't do it. And frankly, uh, I think we're the only law school in the country to have all three, 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 sorry, not all three, three Supreme Court justices teaching in a single academic year. Justice Thomas is teaching a course this semester at the law school. Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh are teaching uh, in the summer program. So, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, that there's any controversy, I mean, it's ridiculous. The man was confirmed by the U.S. Senate, uh, nominated by the president. He's, he, he's sitting on the Supreme Court and will sit for the rest of his life. Um, and uh, we are super excited to have Justice Kavanaugh as part of our law school program. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic. I, I would have been thrilled to have the opportunity to take a class with any Supreme Court justice when I was in law school. And so I think it's really a shame that there there's this, you know, effort to to try to, uh, I think the the hashtag is kick Kavanaugh off campus, which is silly because he's going to be, you know, 3,600 miles, miles away from campus. Uh, but anyway, I'm glad to hear that the, the law faculty and the university president is standing firm with Justice Kavanaugh. Well, I have one, one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? All right. So this is going to come out of left field, particularly for our audience, right? Um, but it's going to be Felix Frankfurter. Okay. And the reason why, and the reason why is Felix Frankfurter was uh, in, you know, served in, in the administration um, and was a, was a liberal you know, par extraordinaire, right? Um, he was a supporter of the New Deal policies, the whole bit. Then he gets on the court, and he separated himself from all of that and became a very sort of even-handed justice mm-hmm. and really thought to dispense law in line with the law as written, uh, in line with the Constitution. Uh, you know, these constitutional views, maybe you may, we may debate those, but I really I want to understand, I, I, I would love to ask Phyllis Frankfurter how he went from being who he was in a highly political environment and almost overnight um, transitioning into being 
a judge. Um, and I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen with uh, with Justice with Justice Gorsuch, um, who went from being a political appointee at the um, at the Justice Department uh, to being a judge and removing himself from that, and then and then continuing that evolution as he got onto the Supreme Court. Um, and I and I just wonder whether it was the, whether whether Frankfurter had the same experience or not, and whether it was different back in that era. Uh, because I can tell you, um, you know, there are a lot of people um, in in our society today who see judges and justices uh, as simply another political branch of the government. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody, uh, people to be to be lobbied, uh, whether it's in the New York Times editorial pages or the frankly the New York Times news pages, you know, um, <laughs> or or even on Fox News. Um, you know, let's be fair. It happens all around, conservatives and liberals alike. Um, when we don't get the results when the, that we like in our political system, we run to the courts. And we expect the courts to fix the policy problems we don't like rather than turning as we should to the electoral process. And um, that's an important thing for us to realize as a country that um, uh, we, as conservatives, regularly excoriate liberals for doing it. But we've gotten in the mode of doing that ourselves. And we need to, we need to stop doing that. We need to encourage uh, our judges to be judges. Mm-hmm. Um, and our politicians be politicians, and we need to hold our politicians accountable. Um, and so, so I want to see if it was the same for Frankfurter back in that era as it was for uh, for now Justice Gorsuch. Um, and uh, and I want to really laud that that thing to show that you know uh, liberals and conservatives alike can can make that transition, um, and that we ought to, we as society ought to learn from that and stop running the course to solve our problems, and instead uh, turn to our politicians and hold them accountable. Definitely. Well, that would be a great conversation. Well, Jamil, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Vulgar Free Speech Edition. I'm going to try to stump uh, my guest host this week, Kevin. Are I'm you ready? Probably just going to blush and get them all wrong. So. <laughs> okay, first question. Uh, Justice Potter Stewart popularized this phrase in a case where the Supreme Court reviewed the conviction of a theater manager who was prosecuted for showing an obscene film. I know it when I see it. That's right. It comes from Stewart's concurrence in Jacob Ellis versus Ohio, a 1964 case, and he was attempting to define obscenity. All right, you're off to a great start. Cool. Second question, and this involved a little bit of research on Westlaw. <laughs> How many Supreme Court decisions have included the F word? You're kidding. Is there even one? <laughs> if you could give me like a, a range, like under 25, 25 to 50, sure. 50 to 100. I'll, I'll give you within a, you know, within a range. Boy, um, is so this, this is number of opinions or number of uses of the term? Number of opinions. Number of opinions. Yes. Um, I didn't count up in every opinion. How under, under 10. Close. There were 13 cases. Not bad. Okay. Most of which are free speech challenges sure. to, to various government actions. Uh, third question. In what case did the court uphold the right to engage in offensive and vulgar expression saying... Quote, the right of free expression is powerful medicine in a society as diverse as ours. It involves a courthouse, if that's helpful. Is it Cohen versus California? Yes. Am I giving too much away with my hints? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so this is the case of Paul Cohen, who was prosecuted for wearing a jacket with the words F the draft when he entered a county courthouse. Okay, you're doing great. Fourth and final question. In FCC versus Pacifica Foundation, a 1978 decision, the Supreme Court upheld the FCC's ability to censor this comedian's filthy words monologue uh, from running on public airwaves. It was referenced probably half a dozen times in uh, in the Brunetti argument. I don't remember what it is. It's George Carlin. George Carlin. Who's yeah. 
seven words you can't words, say yeah. on yeah. public airwaves uh, routine that helped make uh, helped him earn the moniker the dean of counterculture comedians. Yeah. And in fact, after his his death in 2008, Rolling Stone ranked him as the second best stand up comic of all time behind Richard Pryor. Um, so I think you did a great job. I'll take it. And thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.